This is the second of a two-part quest to find what the best horror movies of the 70s are. My guest, Lee Beckman, and I are going to be ranking our top 12 horror movies of the 70s, and we're going to be reviewing Magic, The Brood, and Brian De Palma's Carrie. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. As usual, I will warn you that there will be coarse language and there will be spoilers. And as usual, I will tell you to send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, you guys. I'm going to be hosting around Canadian Larry Parsons. Let's get into it. Abracadabra, I sit on his knee. Presto, change and now he is me. Pocus, pocus, we take her to bed. Magic is free. We're dead. Josephine Levine presents Magic, a terrifying love story, starring Anthony Hopkins, Anne Margaret, and Burgess Meredith, rated R. So Richard Attenborough. Yep. Uh, before he was, you know, hammered into pop culture's psyches as the man who built Jurassic Park in Steven Spielberg's movie as an actor, uh, he played Hammond in that movie. Uh, he made his bones as a very effective filmmaker effective I think he's an extremely accomplished filmmaker in between two of his more celebrated historical epics that being A Bridge Too Far and Gandhi yes he did this before Gandhi yeah this is what I'm saying this happened in between those two big epics yeah is this really out there psychological horror film called Magic yeah starring a young and very impressive Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, he he does. Uh, he's the the biggest selling point of this movie. Um, like I do think it's a good story, and I do yeah. think like that the, the the story does hold together. But yeah. if you didn't have somebody who was absolutely on point in the central performance, yeah, it would not fly. Yeah, for the people at home who are probably too young to really sort of understand and respect how good Anthony Hopkins is, not yeah. was, is still one of the best cinematic actors working today. Yeah. If you want to see why, one of the reasons why people say that, you need to check out Magic. It is, 
This is y- like young, hungry Anthony Hopkins. I'm going to spend some time on the plot because this is one of those movies that I don't think a lot of people might have heard of. Fair enough. Uh, it was one of the ones I had a memory of it, but I needed to rewatch to include yep. in my 70s thing. It ended yep. up ranking fairly well in the list. Yeah. Um, Anthony Hopkins is a magician. And uh, his mentor slash teacher is getting out of the game, retiring, and looks like on his last legs, mm-hmm. dying. Um, and just doing the card tricks, however well done, however effective, is not working. It's not getting any kind of notice or any kind of effect of the crowds. No matter how good yeah. his sleight of hand work is, no one gives a fuck. Yeah. So he has to come up with some way to sell his skill set. Yeah. So he brings in the ventriloquist angle, and he gets this dummy, Fats. Yeah. Now, I think ventriloquist dummies anywhere except for on the stage are just inherently creepy looking. Yeah, there's something very scary about (laughs) this. When you got a guy doing a show on stage, it's all charming and lovely. But the second it goes in the back room or in the dressing room or in its little fucking coffin suitcase, that's a creepy little doll. And uh, the movie is really effective in employing that, like... Fats is kind of funny and rival and, and works blue on stage and you can sort of get how he would be funny. Mm-hmm. But Anthony Hopkins never breaks dialogue with Fats. Yeah. He's always talking to Fats, whether they're on stage or whether they're not. Mm-hmm. And uh, the movie, I mean, it's a performance thing. Like, yeah, he's talking to himself. He, he's filling it back and forth. But the longer it goes on and the darker things get, you start asking yourself, is this just Anthony Hopkins? Is he just mentally ill? Mm-hmm. He's really threatened by the idea of someone telling him that he's mentally ill. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to take any kind of medical tests mm-hmm. to get a, a Hollywood contract, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Fats sort of becomes the dominant, quote, personality. Yeah. And Fats has got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. And uh, yeah. adversaries have a, a way of disappearing yeah. if Fats will, you know, gets his will. Yeah. Um, and so we see this war that's, you could argue, just taking place in one sick person's mind. Yeah. Or if you chose to. You could say that that doll had some sort of supernatural property. Yeah. The real gift of the movie is that it lets you decide. Yeah. I've had the pleasure of being around children most of my professional career. You know, um, so I've seen all kinds of kids. I've also seen, you know, firsthand mental illness. Um, So, and that that's also gone heavily into my job. So to see the thought process of children diagnosed or not and how they deal with conflict or issues, just seeing the tragedy of, you know, a person with mental illness and how they make all the wrong decisions, how they go about it, I've seen that before. So to see that in magic so brilliantly portrayed, I see this movie more as a tragedy than a full-out thriller. It's still brilliant and it's still a horror movie, don't get me wrong. A lot of the classic great horror movies are tragedies as well. Just that dummy's face makes it a fucking horror movie, yeah. right? like, You could argue not one supernatural thing happens, and you yeah. could say, like, on the strictest level, this is just a straight thriller. Yeah. But that dummy makes this a horror movie. Yeah, no, and the thing is that you like Corky. Mm-hmm. Like, you want this person to succeed. Like, even when, with that opening shot where he's telling that story and how it, how it went to that club at the first time, and... Yeah. His mentor says, you just need to, you know, learn some charm or whatever that line is. You need charm. You You need need something to sell your skills. You have the skills, now you need the personality to back it. And just, he goes about it the wrong way, obviously. He puts the personality into the doll. Because he doesn't want to work blue. But he'll let the doll work blue. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the doll will get all the laughs. And the doll gets all the laughs at his expense. Yeah. He's constantly, you know, putting Corky down. Yeah. 
But I well, I absolutely agree with you. Is that I can identify with that performer anxiety. Yeah, I have done enough shitty shows for enough shitty audiences. Yeah, you know, where you're just like, I was so stressed about this last night. I was learning this sketch, wasn't sure if it was gonna work, mm-hmm. and I was worried to perform it to crickets. And yeah. I may be performing to crickets, but it's not because the sketch sucks. It's because nobody gives a fuck that we're up here. Yeah, it's some business convention that this entertainment was hired for, yeah. and they've been in meetings all day, and they just want to drink a beer and socialize. They don't give a shit that you're up there, right? Yeah. And it's this lonely, desperate thing. Yeah. He even has this outburst on stage. He says like this. This was a thousand hours of my life to learn this trick. You know, pay attention to me, right? Yeah. And that I, I can so relate to that feeling yeah. of like, I, I really take my art seriously, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I really take this podcast seriously, but not very many people listen to it, right? Okay. I really take uh, my, my acting seriously, but I've been seen by, if I'm honest, maybe a few thousand people in my career. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because that's the nature of live theater. Yeah. Um, so, like, it's really easy to see, just feel small and that what you're doing has no real purpose. Yeah. And I, I, I really, really identified with Corky in that. Yeah. And then being able to hide behind something. Yeah. Be it, you know, a costume affect or in this case, the dummy itself. Yeah. Being able to throw that anxiety and blame it on someone else. Yeah. It's the difference between doing an interview when I'm Larry Parsons and doing an interview when I'm playing a character like Clive or something. Yeah. You'll ask questions that you would never ask yeah. yourself right yeah, yeah. you you give yourself this this lever to like just go farther than you would yeah and that's what this movie's dealing with except for going farther than you would starts to involve homicide yeah it's so tragic as well when the love story does kick in between him and, and Anne margaret that was another thing because once again you've got this very broken human being who clearly has some issues but you see the goodness in him and just the very warped way that romance sort of unravels in the story you just you know that no good is going to come of this for either of them he is talented and he is charming yeah but his illness eclipses it yeah and that's the tragedy like you see yeah. the story and margaret one slowly won me over in the early scenes yeah i wasn't sure yeah like her reaction to the dummy seems so wrong to me okay like she loves she loves the dummy <laughs> she yeah. thinks it's amazing yeah. she's practically screaming like a child when she first meets fats yeah and uh to me, like, uh, I would have gone maybe the complete other way with <laughs> Okay, it. fair Whereas, enough. like, she likes him, but she does find the fact that he has this ventriloquist dummy yeah. just a little, like, it's a little strange. But at the same time, she recognizes both him and the doll because he's, you know, been on TV before. So I don't think she would be as horrified once she realizes wh- who this is. But anyways... We're picking at you know very good stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is also set in the in the late seventies. It's it's like a very current movie when it yeah. was made, and it's funny they they mention uh, Steve Martin in the movie like we're gonna roll out your your talent the same way we did Steve Martin. Yeah, because at the time Steve Martin was a stand up comedian who was filling stadiums. Yeah, to do his banjo jokes and shit like this, right? Yeah. At the time they thought that's just the way it was. They didn't even realize that that this was this aberration that was Steve Martin. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of interesting that the, that that plot point doesn't yeah. read anymore. At the time, it made complete sense. 
Yeah. But now to roll someone out like Steve Martin is just be like ridiculous. A ventriloquist act that you're going to sell to like fucking Carnegie Hall? I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right? I know. I know. But at the in the set in 78 that wasn't crazy, right? Yeah. Because you had Steve Martin with a fucking arrow through his head. <laughs> and right? a banjo. Playing a banjo. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. everything was on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, to me probably the most saddest scene in the movie though. And mm-hmm. this is it also speaks to how good this character actor is, and that's Burgess, Burgess Meredith, Meredith, who plays the manager. The scene that's both both sad and somewhat scary, because it does eventually lead to his own death, is the scene where he asks Corky not to be fats for five minutes. Yeah. And even that whole scene where Hopkins says, you know, I can't do it. He yeah. says that to him. and He realizes just how sick Corky is. Yeah. That's but such by a, that point he's too deep in the web yeah but all the people that he truly cares about he just tragically killed because of but he doesn't kill him it's the doll yeah. or is it the doll it's, it's yeah it's, anyways it's obviously him. the movie frames it as he's ill and yeah. that, that, that it's him but for all those people out there that find dolls scary you, you do have that option yeah like <laughs> yeah. you do have the option that yeah because there is a very noticeable time jump. Like, he's just a magician. Yeah. And then we jump. And, and he's, he's a celebrity. A very good ventriloquist. And yeah. he's about to get his big ticket into Hollywood. Yeah. And so, presumably, we missed the time where he found the doll and, like, where he trained, you know, where he, be, where he, where where he lost he, Where himself. he developed fats, yeah. He, he kind of lost his mentor, too, right? The magician yeah. that trained him is no more. So... It's such a fascinating movie. And yeah. like I say, another one a lot of people missed. William Goldman, he did this based off of his novel. I haven't read the novel, but yeah. it's one of the other reasons that I do respect William Goldman in spite yeah. of the fact that... Well, he there wrote, was a time where he where he was pumping out. Oh, yeah. In spite of the fact that he wrote Dreamcatcher. I mean, he did write Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He did yeah. write The Princess Bride. He did yeah. write Misery. Yeah. We'll give him, you know, we can give him that. But uh, I've read hey, a couple no, of no his novels perfect. now. Yeah, yeah. Um, this one, Edged Weapons, was made into like a Bruce, uh, a Burt Reynolds movie or whatever. But yeah. uh, it's interesting to me how talented he is because he understands the difference between a novel and a movie, right? Yeah. Uh, the Princess Bride, which he adapted, the, the screenplay is quite different, right? Yeah. And same thing here. Like, uh, I haven't read the book, but I, uh, I was reading up on the movie. There are the psychological angle he could really dig into yeah. in the book. Yeah. Right? Here, we just jump and Corky has changed and yeah. we have to fill in the blanks what has happened with the change. Yeah. And yeah, the fact that not only is Corky or is his puppet sort of the star of his show, but it's the star of his life. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, one very strong aspect of his psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love the look on on Meredith's face when he just realized, kid, I'm going to go and help you. I'm going to take you to a doctor. Like yeah. that, just, he knows that he has on some en- level enabled, he's, he's enabled it. Exploited yeah. this guy. Yeah. Whether he really realized it or not. Yeah. You're an agent. You're making money off of someone else's talent. Like yeah. that. That's just a fact. Yeah. You might help him get the gigs and you might help raise his level of, of yeah. fame. Yeah. But you're getting all of your green off of someone else's ability, yeah. right? Yeah. So on some level, he is using people, but yeah. I don't think he fully understood. Like when he first signs the contract or he's first talking about the contract, he says, yeah. 
please just promise me you won't go too crazy too yeah. quickly because yeah. everybody's really nice until they make it right yeah. there's that that idea that celebrity can break you psychologically yeah. Yeah. so I think that's where he's at yeah that's where he's thinking oh the but fame is getting cares too. for Corky he does yeah. and that's what makes his his death more tragic to us it's yeah. like he does care for for Corky and he didn't realize until that moment that it was just an act that that yeah. On top of being incredibly talented, which he was, he's incredibly sick. Yes. And he just has that realization just a little bit late. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. just a little no. bit late. Yeah, I know. But he's such a, like, you've got that really recognizable Burgess Meredith face. And yeah. uh, he's more like a gentle, lighter, sort of almost comedic type of actor. To see that transition on his face and to see yeah. his tragedy pull in it really works for the movie yeah it it helps if there's people that you care about who die because it it has more impact yeah I do also think the movie's best thrilling scene is what follows soon after of him trying to swim to the middle of the lake and with the body Mm -hmm. and sink it that to me was when I was like that's when the thriller elements really started to kick in for me so there is some like tense tense moments of course the body washes up on shore strategically I might add yeah but um, no, that's there's something about the vo- fat's voice too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now that's another thing that I'd like to look into and understand. Either way, I think it's a fucking brilliant performance. Yes. But I get the feeling like Fat's voice was dubbed in after the fact. That that a lot of the time he wasn't literally ventri- being a ventriloquist. He was yeah. playing a ventriloquist. Okay. But to me, like some people would say, do your due diligence. Adrian Brody did that dummy movie, and he fucking learned how to be a ventriloquist. Yeah, and, when and he was, Hopkins is not bad as a ventriloquist. I mean, you can see his lips moving. No, a couple but times, I mean, but that's yeah. deliberate, right? Yeah, like, like yeah. he's good as he can be. Yeah. Um, but I do think that that secondary performance was was plugged into the movie. Okay. I I'm maybe I'm wrong, but. Um, uh, there's something so powerful about Fats's voice yeah. and so so meek about Corky and how that switches just at the very end. Yeah. To kill Fats, he of course spoilers, must yeah. kill himself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And as both of them are winding down, the conversation continues. Yeah. But Corky's taking point. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. So he takes control in the end, but has to kill himself to but do so, and that's life. really tragic. And of course, it's just to add even more punch is that even after all of what's gone on, and Margaret is still wanting to still at least attempt at that relationship. Mm-hmm. That's how the movie ends. So that's how, like I, I get back to this like tragedy. It's it's just very much a sad, sad story. Um, like I, I was thrilled by by Ellen's of it, but it was one of those. It was like watching May in a lot of ways. You know, I know they're completely different stories, but here's a person that is a very meekish. This is a broken person bro- who gets more broken. Yeah, as through the movie. But it's trying desperately to do good, and we just want to be happy. Yeah, we just want to be happy as possible. He just wants to entertain people. Yeah, that's all he wants. And I get that. It's a good movie. Yep.
at number 12, I have the narratively confusing, but that's one of the reasons why I love it. Uh, and it's, I think, one of the classic def defini definition of existential horror. And that is Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. A very highly controversial movie. Once again, it, it's, it's terror kind of slowly creeps and creeps and creeps on you. I love, uh, and once again, the 70s, they love the ESP. They love the, the, the psychic um, storyline, if you will. Uh, the very challenging Don't Look yeah. Now with a great uh, Dumb Blood and, and also fucking rock, Julie Christie once again. Yeah. yeah, she's really good. Yeah. Uh, it's funny we're close on that. For me, number 12 is Taxi Driver, which yeah. we just talked about, so yeah. I'm not going to like really blow through too much. But uh, yeah. yeah, Travis Bickle is a villain, a super villain, a dangerous motherfucker. Mm. And this is like the origin story of yeah. a dangerous motherfucker. And when the credits roll, he's still out there ticking away. Yeah. He can, you could get into his cab. Yeah. And one day he's going to kill more people. Yeah. He is going to kill yeah. more people. Yeah. That is inevitable. Yeah. And um, it's a fascinating, dark, yeah. classic Scorsese yeah. piece. So, yeah. Uh, number 12, Taxi Driver. So, at number 11, it's my Canadian boy. My boy. And once again, I think the ideas presented to me uh, in this movie are very intelligent. And good horror is about something more, like something else, something deeper. Yeah. I think this is an example of this, and that is David Cornerberg's The Brood. We are going to talk about this movie. This movie, the more I see it, the more terrifying it is. Especially, you know, as a parent, I think it's definitely affected me. But I just love, love The Brood. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we're going to review that, so we'll get deeper into it. The, mm -hmm. My number 11, you just mentioned it too. It's funny how close both Taxi Driver and Don't Look Now have meshed together. Yeah. The other interesting thing about Don't Look Now is that uh, it's another one of these British pro er, uh, independently produced uh, horror movies uh, yeah. made by a British filmmaker, and uh, both it and The Wicker Man, they didn't know what to do with. The studios didn't like them, so yeah. they paired them together. And instead of releasing them like wide, they mm. toured as yeah. a little twosome. Two of the best horror movies of the seventies you could watch as a double feature: The Wicker Man and Don't Look Now. And what what would your head be like when you walk out Oof. of the fucking theater after yeah. those two movies? But yeah, I agree with everything you said about Don't Look Now. Like, um, it's all over the place. It's got that weird controversial sex scene at the beginning, which is just like. Donald which, Sutherland having sex and uh, with his wife being juxtaposed with them just doing humdrum boring things and you know, just not the, feeling anything. So it's like with, with this intense sort of sex juxtaposed against this really boring depressed, yeah. you know, grief because they're... It is a meditation on grief. Yeah. They're the, it's one of these movies that's all set on the precipice of a horrible, horrible tragedy. Yeah. So, uh... No, uh, the always, always memorable Don't Look Now ranks at 11 for me. At number 10, and this is where, you know, you could argue that, that, that this is not a true horror film, um, but I will make a case, and in some ways you're right. It, it's definitely the most, I think, polarizing pick. Uh, but once again, here's another example of what I would call the very, defin or the very definition of existential horror, where, you know, this movie is about, about an environment that is very nihilistic in nature, um, you could even argue that um, fate is the monster here in this movie. It's very dark and pessimistic, and it's not the first William Friedkin film on this list. But at uh, number 10 is, is Sorcerer. There's been two movies this year that made me, and I've already talked about this, where I just was literally grabbing the couch that I was sitting in and like 
you know, just gripping my fist and screaming at the movie. And I, this is that's when I realized how into it I was. And that was obviously Train to Busan, which you which, which you showed me. But <laughs> Sorcerer is the second one. It's based off the novel Wages of Fear, just to give you a sort of a heads up. But and, it's more of like a, a sort of a international thriller, like yeah, by description anyway. Yeah. Yeah, but you're just saying it's so intense that it almost qualifies. Well, I I, I was screaming and going ah ah you're, he's gonna die, aren't you? Kind of thing, right. um, but also um, because the environment is such a monster in a lot of ways, and also like I said, fate is this almost looming presence presence with this movie, and it, the ending of it is very very dark as well. Um, basically, it's about four. Not good human beings. These are not good men. You know, an Italian hitman, a Palestinian terrorist, a French banker who defrauds France's Wall Street, and then leaves both his best friend, who kills himself right in front of him, and his wife to sort of take all the flack as he flees. And of course, my boy Roy Scheider, mm-hmm. uh, Captain Brody, who uh, is this you know, mobster getaway driver for this group, and they uh, go and rob this church that is actually a front for their rival, this rival gang that they're fighting with, and a priest is killed in the robbery, uh, and then they're escaping, of course. All of Brooklyn's looking for them for what they've done, and he crashes the car. They end up in sort of a squalor in South America, which its main bread and butter is this oil rig which very soon explodes and catches fire. And not only is the oil company losing millions of dollars per minute, but the whole town, if it's not stopped, will burn. burn. So these four men who are not good men get together and reconstruct two um, very not well put together trucks and and they're told there's highly unstable nitroglycerin. Uh, They put in the back of these two trucks and then go up the mountain and battle all kinds of things from warring... Amazon, warring tribes to each other to without a doubt there's a, a sequence that is puts the temple of doom bridge to shame so you like you like this movie okay i, I don't want to talk anymore anyways <laughs> william freakin's this william freakin's sorcerer all right again um my only like I, I my memory is that it's a really good movie it's been a long time since i've seen it yeah i don't uh it might be on my list of some of the best movies of the 70s i just yeah. don't know if it'd be one of the best horror movies of the 70s well it's it's very, very tense. tense. It's very tense. And Fair I'm just enough. like, ah. And look, you've called me shenanigans on some of the things I've selected in the past, so yeah. I'm not going to wag my finger too hard. Yeah. And Tenth One is a weird one for me because I, I have a love-hate relationship with it, but yeah. I can't deny that it didn't, needs to be discussed on this list, and mm-hmm. that's Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not on my list. Yeah. Well, a lot of people feel that way. I get that it's an experiential horror movie, uh, and that it's shrill, and that it's, like, piercing, and effect, like... But... It, it leaves its mark on you. I think that I feel about this movie the way you felt about uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. Is that it made me feel unclean. Like, it, it it made me feel gross for having watched it. Yeah. I still am skeptical of, like, how much of this was skill and how much of it was luck as yeah. far as how they achieved it. But it definitely, you know... It, 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 it's a it's a tough movie. It, it's not as violent as its reputation it yeah. is, but it is every bit as intense and uh, horrific as its reputation says. Um, it, it, it's influential. It feels found footage. It feels like it should be mentioned in the same yeah. breath as Cannibal Holocaust or, or Blair Witch or something like that, but it's yeah. not found footage. It's just the presentation of it is so raw that it yeah. feels authentic sometimes. I went back and forth because originally Texas Chainsaw was on this list. 
and then I took it off, and I've rewatched it, and my esteem for it has grown. Like, I would like to actually have it in my collection. Sorry, horror fans, I don't have it, because I used to not... I, I was so disappointed by it. It's a very terrifying movie, um, and the last 45 minutes of it, like, they're raw yeah. and primal. It's a hard watch. It's a hard watch. I think... I know for a fact that when Hooper was making it, he was thinking, that, you know, because it was such a low budget, that they were trying to go, go for a PG. And although I think there's lots of skill involved with Hooper, it's, it's, he pulled back a little bit. They could have showed us more. Like, this is the decade of The Exorcist. That's the fascinating thing about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is everyone talks about how fucking brutal it is. It's not. It's not that visually violent. I'm not going to say that there's a no A lot violence. of the violence actually happens off camera. It's like, nowhere near what people think it is. It's the screaming yeah. and the presentation and the yeah. madness that yeah. causes the horror. It's not the chainsaw. I will give credit where credit is due. Our lead female actor character actor yeah. she fucking brings it like yeah. she is amazing in it it was hard for me to leave Texas Chainsaw off this list I will say that well it was hard for me to put it as high as 10th but I just think that it is an influential movie and yeah. it had to be a part of the discussion yeah. uh, it's not a movie that I return to a lot because I find it unpleasant Yeah. but it's a fucking horror movie yep, yep. so here it is yep what's your number 9 number 9 I probably have like Number eight or nine are just lots of fun. Uh, and this movie makes me giddy and smile. And it is obviously a Jaws ripoff. And I do think it's Joe Dante's finest hour. <laughs> and that is Piranha. Yeah. Piranha. Oh, I love this movie. <laughs> it's the killer fish. I just love the fact that our lead character is fucking shit-faced the entire movie. Ah, <laughs> oh, this movie makes me smile from no... Like, just... My, I smile from ear to ear to end of this movie to no end and that's Joe Dante's Piranha I'm so disappointed that we're not talking about this movie because I know you've reviewed it before but Piranha's so much fun it, it's a fun movie I'm it not, is I'm not really fighting you on it I yeah. like I have, no, it's on my list it's, it's just my lovely. it's my highest guilty pleasure I will say that well I got some guilty pleasures that I'm about to talk about here too okay. number nine is a vampire tie okay one of them's intensely personal and one of them you've already mentioned okay Toby Hooper Yep. Surprise, surprise. As much as I talk shit about it, he has two movies on the top ten horror movies of the 70s. Yeah. I think his Salem's Lot is fairly strong. I think there's some really scary stuff that works on television. I'm not sure why they made the changes they did to this novel, but yeah. it nothing breaks the movie. Nothing makes the movie not work. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to mention Salem's Lot. This one's personal to me, but uh, the... Frank Langella version of Dracula. Oh, okay. You know. There's a scene in that movie, and again, it just goes back to me seeing it too young. Yeah. Where this uh, man Lucy. Has, to, has to stake his daughter. Yeah, there's the character of Lucy. That's a creepy scene. And uh, it's always stayed with me. Yeah. And for some reason, I just wanted to include it here. Yeah. I'm letting it share a space with, uh, with this, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Dracula and Salem's Lot. Okay. Uh, number eight... I just wonder what the fuck that sound is. It's like a moth or something. Yeah. At number eight, I have the batshit insane crazy. Um, and this is no... Uh, oh, I, I'm going to try and say this correctly. Um, no, Nobuko Obayashi. Uh, it's a Japanese horror film called House. You have to right. even say it like that. Ten, long, almost a good decade before Sam Raimi decided to do this insane, crazy, evil dead movie. Uh, this this apparently very famous Toho film director who did a lot of commercials did this 
off-the-wall uh, story of about this young girl who uh, finds out that his father is about to is dating again and remarry and that um, this sort of kind of weird creepy woman and uh, in doing so writes a letter to uh, her mother her mother's sister her auntie uh, who, she, who she hasn't seen in almost 10 years uh, especially after the death of her mother her and her friends go to this auntie's house and right off the bat you know there's something very wrong but even like the if you can get past the first 30 some minutes because uh, it almost works as a sort of Hello Kitty melodrama cartoon, but there's something just a little bit off about it, and then it gets to the house. And See, yeah. the visual imagination in this movie is outstanding. This is pre-CGI. The filmmaking and the imagination, yeah. I agree with, but yeah. I think that it's more mad than yeah. anything else. Yeah, And maybe that's what people love about it. I considered it for the list. I didn't put it on the list. Yeah, I, I found some of it so absurd that it made me laugh. Yeah, no, no, you laugh at this movie. Like, it's... Uh, I found it more terrifying in the last couple of minutes, but it's so insane. Like, just the visual imagination to this movie is just off the charts in a lot of ways. I find this with me in a lot of Asian cinema. Yeah. It seems to be like they, they, they like having really dramatic tone shifts in yeah. the movies. Yeah. And uh, for me, I, I, I find it uncomfortable I don't know why some movies can pull it off it, it has been done yeah. successfully but this movie's not for everyone I freely admit that uh, and it's not that I you know was graphing at grabbing the straws but I'd never seen a movie well I'd seen Evil Dead before this but I can imagine like people seeing this for the first time and it's, you're seeing a movie kind of ahead of its time yeah in a lot of ways so I can put in house on there okay I have another tiresome tie okay. in eighth place yeah. There are two films directed by Bob Clark. Okay. One is called Black Christmas and yeah. one is called Death Dream. Yeah. He made them back to back in 74 and 76, I want to say. Yeah. Um, you look at them now and they are throwback works. <coughs> Death Dream is about a guy who yeah. comes back from Vietnam, a corpse, but gets up and goes and visits his parents. Yeah. And it's a not so subtle allegory on how war changes people, right? Yeah. And how it affects the family and spills over to the rest of society. And uh, it's not subtle. But it was one of the first of its kind in that regard, and it also has makeup effects by a young and hungry Tom Savini. Yep. So I think it's worth a look for that. And Black Christmas is the slasher movie template. It beats Halloween out the gate. Yep. It beats Friday the 13th out of the gate. Yep. The point of view perspective kills. The fact that the movie ends unresolved with the killer running free. Yep. I think that Bob Clark made two quietly incredibly influential horror movies mm -hmm. and I don't think they get enough speak so they may rank a little bit artificially high by sharing 8th position but yeah. I wanted to mention them fair enough at uh, number 7 I have one of Wes Craven's finest hour um, a lot of love is given to Nightmare on Elm Street and I do love that movie so but I do think this movie is a lot better and that is The Hills Have Eyes. This movie is an endurance test. I think we've talked about this movie. We reviewed this movie together. <laughs> um, uh, this movie is an endurance test. Uh, and once again, all the performers in this movie, both from the villains and to our victims' heroes, are so good. You really want to hate these mountain <laughs> folks. You really do hate them. Uh, and so when the tide does finally turn, <sighs> you're just like, fucking yeah! <laughs> like, you go, dog! <laughs> yeah, so, well, like... Congratulations for the first time on this list so far. Yeah. We share a placement on the list. Yeah. Because The Hills Have Eyes is also my seventh place. Yeah. 
And for me, that movie, I mean, it was always, it was good. I was liking it. The suspense was good. The characters were yeah. working for me. But it's the assault on the trailer. Oh, my God. It's the assault on the trailer where, like, not a, things don't go a little wrong. Things just go off the fucking cliff yeah. entirely. Yeah. A woman fights to the death for her baby yeah. and fucking loses. Loses, I know. It's unbelievable to watch. Like, you yeah. just... Like, it, it, it has that component of a horror movie where yeah. you cannot literally believe yeah. what you're seeing. Yeah. This evil must be punished. Yeah. Yeah, they can. So, yeah. God's uh, gonna sit this one out yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like, you can tell by our reactions, like, it gets under your skin. Yeah. It's a tough yeah. fucking horror movie. And I agree, it's not for everybody, <laughs> yeah. but Lee and I both Woo! put it at number seven of yeah. the best I, horror I, I movies. I can't believe seven. it's number seven. That's, that's one of the things. It's just like, oh, but there's so many better ones. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. They come from the unknown, and they're here now, hiding, waiting to strike. You can feel their presence all around you. Never before have you come this close to the edge of terror. Never before have you faced anything so strange and sinister, so bizarre and unnerving. Never until now. David Cronenberg's The Brood. seem to be a very special person now. I'm in the middle of a strange adventure. I want to go with you wherever you go. Do you? Yes. Then look! The Brood. You can run. You can hide and hope they won't find you. But you won't escape. Once unleashed, The Brood will destroy anyone who gets in their way. David Cronenberg's ultimate experience in inner terror, starring Oliver Reed and Samantha Egar. The Brood, they're waiting for you. So I backed into my love of David Cronenberg. Like, I always want to support Canadian talent, and yeah. when I was first finding my way into film, it was probably the early 90s. Okay. which is when Cronenberg was releasing some of his most Cronenbergian films. Yep. Like, uh, you know, Crash and M. Butterfly and yeah. uh, some of his less accessible works, to my opinion. Um, Existence. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to like Cronenberg, but I've always sort of weirdly liked, in a way, some of his more commercial ventures, okay. like The Fly and like The Dead Zone. Yeah. So when we come to The Brood, which I didn't see as a kid, or if I did, I don't remember watching it, um, it felt to me when I was watching it like this is the movie that should have made Cronenberg. It was his next film, Scanners, that I think really sort of yeah. made him pop big and yeah. got him some you know, high-paying jobs in Hollywood. But yeah. The Brood is a fully formed piece of Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. other than maybe some kinky sex, because it doesn't really have any kinky sex. There is it. actually no sex it, up until this point. It's probably his 
coldest movie, but I think it's also one of his most personal ones. And to, it has to do with his divorce. Yes. And uh, basically, I felt the themes of uh, you know parental, not necessarily neglect. It's the but sins of the mother. Well, the sins of the family is is definitely a thing that's the fear that the parent has that they're going to wreck their kid. Yeah. They're gonna they're gonna fuck up their kid. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. despite their best. I think every parent has that thought though. It's Absolutely. A hor- it's a horrifying thought. Well, and that's why it makes good sort of fodder for a horror movie. Yeah. Um, the movie sort of. Split between following this uh, high-profile psychiatrist who's got this innovative new program of way to, to reach uh, people. What's the name of it? I actually have it here. It's played by Oliver Reed, by yeah. the way. Hal Reagan is the name of the uh, uh, the uh, the doctor, and it's weird. It's part of the '70s era stuff. We're going to talk about it. In some yeah, of the other could, we, once again, that love of psychology. Yeah, Psychoplasmics is the name of the program that he is he's using. Running. But he's also sort of like a all pseudo Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, almost celebrity type of doctor. Yes, yes. He's dealing with heavily traumatized people. And he does his work in front of live auditoriums of people. Yeah, he gives lectures, yeah. And uh, he's got a God God complex. He's he's Victor Frankenstein in a lot of ways. Uh, Then we also have uh, this couple that are uh, on the outs that... uh, Yes, Frank and Nora. Yeah, and... uh, Canadian boy Art Art Hindle, and also... uh, Samantha British Eggers. Samantha Eggers, who's a fairly good British actor, thespian, I should say. Yeah, um, they have, <laughs> She's got a lot of issues. She's going to be seeing this psychiatrist to help see if we can sort this mess out. Yeah. But uh, their daughter is caught in the tug of war and the in between. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, monstrous children start manifesting and killing folk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's basically the field that we're playing in. What, what what do these two storylines have to do with each other, and where do these evil dwarf children things fit into the mix? Yeah, um, and I think it's a solid as a rock horror movie it's still today. Um, better than can, solid, actually. You but... can tell it's a low budget movie made in Toronto in yeah. the mid seventies. Yeah, but if you can forgive the aesthetic, which I don't think is something you can really hold against a movie. Yeah, um, I don't think anybody who's a fan of the horror genre will feel their time is wasted yeah no no uh you I, you mentioned how it's it's a bitterly cold movie and it is both stories wise and in aesthetics Cronenberg up at this point had been using bright yellows and reds with was with shivers and rabid and here you've got a lot of cold brown red and blues it's definitely a fall aesthetic that I can identify with here you know, seeing all those kind of leaves on the ground and also just the Christmas of that Canadian air. There's something that's unmistakable when you shoot in Canada. Yeah. Um, so that's there. And, you know, I, I remember like, like a lot of the reviews when this movie first came out, and I can definitely understand that they called it very chauvinistic. Like, that was one of the, one of the criticisms that this I can movie see had. That. And I can totally see I that. I can totally see that. It's, it's also, I also discovered, like, um, when, when Cronenberg talks about shooting uh, the end scene, I don't want to spoil it too much, but... Um, uh, when uh, spoilers, uh, the Frank character finally strangles Nora. Cronenberg talks about shooting that scene and it's called it extremely satisfying. Yeah, and I'm just like, ooh, ooh. well, he created a fictional story, a story in which you know yeah. the woman who represents his ex-wife. Yeah, yeah, for a plot point, needed some strangling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what's, I mean, if we're going to say it, we're going to say it. Um, yeah. If we're spoiling any of these movies for you, I apologize. But yeah. I do put a spoiler warning at the top of every episode. Yeah. Um, she has this 
sort of artificial womb from which she can... Her uterus is on the outside, is essentially what it is. She can manifest these children out of it, and whatever she's It's the the big shock reveal. Yeah, whenever she's angry at someone, whatever uh, rage she feels, whatever she projects outwards, it turns into one of these evil little gremlin creature kids, and it goes out and sort of tries to extinguish the source of the rage. Yeah. Um, so that's where the little kids are coming from. Yeah. So uh, the psychiatrist is indeed a sort of a mad doctor. Yeah. I don't know that we can say that we like Oliver Reed. And like no, no. Said, in fact, I think he's he's honestly he's the real villain of the piece because we're like we're also meant to assume that he's known about this for a while. Yeah. Yes. Well, he would have to have. Yeah. And uh, Art Hindle might be uh, definitely a dude stuck in the mindset of the seventies, which yeah. still, you know. The way he speaks to women and the way he's yeah. prone towards violence and not questioning it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that's sort of some of the bitterness that comes with the, just the period that the movie came out of. Yeah. But I think it's a ballsy sort of horror movie. And it's the most purely Cronenberg one I can see. Like, both Shivers and Rabbit feel like Cronenberg riffing on Romero to a certain degree. Okay. It still has his own sort of kinky, gross angles to them. Okay. But... Brood is pure Cronenberg. Yeah, I know, I know. His his infatuation with body horror, right. like he really gets under the skin. Um, I like the whole thing, and he talks about this, where when people experience really like severe emotional trauma, say like a divorce, right. then the body then has been known to react in certain ways to deal with the pain of that grief. Yeah. I've even sort of oddly experienced, like I've had huge rashes after... Kind traumatic of events. events so I that kind of struck a chord as well and that is explored obviously to an in, in umpteenth degree well, but and as we progress through Cronenberg's film like mm-hmm. Videodrome there's that really disturbing dream sequence in, in Dead Ringers like yeah. where there's a very physical body horror stuff yeah. Naked Lunch holy shit right yeah, <laughs> like, like uh, oh yeah Cronenberg is definitely into this uncomfortable zone, but yeah. this is the first time he fully got into the bath with that as far as his films. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to say about The Brood is the mm-hmm. violence in the movie. Considering it has violence on and delivered by and on children, yeah. he doesn't flinch from it. No. It's got that really bright red Kool-Aid blood that you tend to see in 70s movies. Yeah, but it's still, yeah. But like a grandmother gets bludgeoned to, to death, death with yeah. like a meat tenderizer well, the father gets beaten to death if yeah. I'm not mistaken as well and that's you know that's pretty brutal. awful it's <laughs> brutal it's, yeah. it's ugly and uh, like you said or it could have been done the other way is where we're looking from yeah. the P of, point of view of him and we're seeing the hammers swing down but we're not seeing the violence or you no. know there were ways to get around it, but mm-hmm. there was a conscious choice to not get around it. Yeah. We're going to make you uncomfortable with this. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to feel safe while you're watching this movie. And none of the characters are going to feel safe yeah. while you're watching this movie. So. No, the other thing I really liked about this is that I, I, I see Nora as more of a tragic character anyways. She only, like, if you watch closely the end scene once again, where she doesn't realize, I mean, she knows she's, she's a guinea pig. She's been giving birth and she's been a guinea pig. Like she's been manipulated and and essentially like kept in seclusion by this doctor to begin with and turned into a monster. But if you watch, she she's unaware that her brood have actually gone and killed people. Right. She's given birth. She doesn't know that she, as in essence, is a murderer. Right. So to that kind of you just you just see that look in her face that by Eggers at that one point. It's it's really really good. 
But the other thing is that who's the first person to die in that movie? It's the it's the grandmother, yeah. right? You know, of course, and it's revealed, you know, early on as well that you know she has abused um, the cycle of abuse. Yeah, like that's, reason, where that's where it's really all started. The reason Nola's getting psychiatry is because she's been accused of abusing her daughter. Yeah, right. So um, and her mother abused her. So this yeah. is a cycle of abuse thing. This is what the father is trying to protect her from, which is why yeah. he is positioned in a heroic place, even yeah. though he doesn't behave very heroically, arguably. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I also am not entirely unsympathetic to the rage of a of like the Papa Bear rage. Yeah, you know. Yeah, like if if it if it has to do with my kids being in danger, I might not be reasonable yeah. about it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I, I can get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I think it taps into that as well. Um, I don't. I feel like I've downplayed the fact that it is actually a genuinely creepy movie. It is. No, I think I, that it might be the creepiest movie that Cronenberg made. I mean, The Fly is more viscerally, violently scary, and like the Dead Zone. Sort but of, it's it really it's a, almost a Greek tragedy in some ways. Yeah. It is. It's a tragic love story. Yeah. Well, same thing with Dead Zone in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of walks that wire line between thriller and horror movie. I think that, yeah, this is the Cronenberg's most authentic and original scary horror, horror film. Okay, I can buy that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. mean, he's done lots of other movies, but he has kind of abandoned the horror genre for the last while. <laughs> I think, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I would love it, love it, love it if he was to return. Yeah. Another thing occurred to me while I was watching The Brood, this is maybe slightly off topic, but I'm just wondering to get your thoughts on it. Okay. Cronenberg movies haven't been remade, typically, have they? Well, they'd be very difficult to do a lot of them. <laughs> like, because they're so personal. But I can see someone taking a stab at Scanners, right? Yeah, I can I see can that. I can see someone taking a stab at Shivers. Okay. The Brood is something that is so Cronenberg. I think yeah. that, like, you yeah. probably couldn't do it, right? Well, you wouldn't do it well. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yes, please, Cronenberg, return to the horror genre. Yeah. Um, there's usually an element of ick or horror undercurrent to his films, but yeah. as much as I've really enjoyed, uh, you know, some of his more recent things like uh, the history of violence and uh, yeah. things like that, um, I miss. I miss horror, Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so many reasons why I think this movie is a classic to me, because I think there's a lot of levels to this movie. I mean, on one level, you've got this sort of beach-locky plot of, you know, monstrous children horde, zombie horde, if you will, mm -hmm. go on murdering people, but uh, the, the attention that they get to the traumatic relationships, Cronenberg yeah, does love his tragedy, tragedies a whole lot with horror films, and this is another one, like, this is a family basically, is, destroyed. is breaking apart and is splintered into something monstrous. That's what the movie's about, it's about the destruction of yeah. the family, and how, it, although it is aided by a mad doctor, it yeah. is largely self-destructing. Yes, yes, a lot of them are, I, but it's also about a very dangerous relationship between mother and their children, which is also explored in the Babadook. I, I kind of see those as, you know, a good double feature, where you've got mothers who are... Resentful. Resentful, monstrous, and homicidal beings, uh, and it's... They're both, I don't know, they both let me you know, emotionally, psychologically horrified. I, I, the idea is presented in this film. There's uh, the sort of evil flip side to the coin of parenting, and happily yeah. doesn't seem to happen often, but it does yeah. seem to happen. Where yeah. Most people have a kid, and they realize that they're just willing to do what it takes, yeah. to put whatever it takes into the raising of this child. Yeah. But there's that small pretension. 
percentage that sort of use it as this child is going to take from me. Yeah. It's not about giving to this child. It's about this child taking, taking. from me. Yeah. Right? And uh, that usually breeds poisonous environments. It does. It does. <laughs> um, it's interesting that even though it is about, you know, set on the backdrop of a pretty bitter divorce, too, yeah. that I don't think he's entirely unfair to to the Nola character. Like, uh, she's mad, and she's trying to yeah. get help, and she goes to the wrong fucking person for help, yeah. and he makes things worse. Yeah. So, like, I don't feel like he's vilifying her, necessarily. No, only at the end does she, I think, become a villain, but yeah. But she's kind of lost her mind by that point. Right? Yeah. She's been yeah. driven to a place. Yes. Um, so, like, I appreciate that, because it, it could have really earned its reputation as, you know, yeah. a... a, a, a Chauvinistic, chauvinistic not, schlocky. Yeah, and it's not that. It yeah. rides that line, and it yeah. makes you worry that it's going to go there. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, fun fact, Oliver yeah. Reed was arrested during the production of this movie. Uh, yes, I've read that. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, and apparently he, he bet someone who could walk a few blocks yeah. from one bar to the hotel that they were staying Completely at. Completely stark naked. Stark yeah. naked. Yeah. And somebody called the cops on him. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So he'll always remember that one chilly night yeah. in, in, in Toronto. In, I can't, again, like, I've got some limited experience with the police officers, but yeah. I like to think they get him in the back of the car as quickly as possible. <laughs> and then they like, soon realize, hey, shit, you're yeah. Oliver Reed. And apparently he was just cracking them up with that at the police station <laughs> when Cordo work was phone didn't come to get him. But did somebody put the cuffs on a naked Oliver Reed? You know? Yep. Bend him over the car. <laughs> I don't know who bend him over the car, but I, I guess definitely didn't have to pat him down. They no. could tell if he was holding anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at that point, it was more of can we contain this person? But anyway, anyways, that's, yeah. a, that's a trivial, a fun fact. I yeah. read that about the movie and I thought it was worthy of saying. Yeah. I also just like talking about it because we love Cronenberg, we love Canadian content. Yeah. It is a low budget horror movie. Yeah. And, like Cronenberg didn't have the means to really, you know, have a, a luscious production here. Yeah. But he didn't need a luscious production to tell an effective scary horror story. So yeah. thumbs up on the brood. I got one more question. Go. I couldn't figure out how the brood got the snowsuits. <laughs> they were born and then somebody uh no, that's true. You are then who who got them? Like would it be the doctor? I don't know. That was that was the it's one a thing. detail that's not asked. Again, if Cronenberg maybe made it today, they'd be all mutated and naked, right? Yeah, I guess so. I just, that was maybe the we one. should be grateful for the snowsuits. <laughs> yes. Anyways, we're good. six and this movie is a, a, a it's a beautiful slow burn um and i think it's also philip Coff, philip coffin's finest hour to be as well and i still can't believe it's this low and it has one of the most chilling endings <laughs> to any movie any horror movie and everyone's so good from leonard nimoy to brooke adams Oh my God, Brooke Adams! By the way, I know. <laughs> Sorry, I know that sounded bad, ladies, but just, okay. She's very beautiful. Yeah, I feel ashamed for saying that. But okay, anyway. So, invasion of the body snatchers. Invasion of the body snatchers. So good, so yes. good. And once again, I can't believe we're not talking about this movie. 
Uh, Jeff Goldblum's really good in it. Leonard Nimoy. Um, is it Nancy Cartwright? Yeah. It was also an alien. Uh, She's uh, Veronica. Veronica Cartwright. Thank you. Such a good horror movie. One of the best horror movies ever made. Yeah. Invasions of the Body Snatchers. Uh, very solid pick. Better it's, than the original too. I agree. In sixth place, Brian De Palma's Carrie. Okay. Um, among the things that uh, Carrie brought to the screen, well, it legitimized horror movies. It's, yeah. It's an Oscar-nominated horror movie. Yeah. And that fucking jump scare at the end of Carrie. Yeah. It basically created the punchy jump scare at the end. Like, uh, yeah, Sean S. See... Cunningham admitted that he put that jump scare at the end of Friday the 13th because he wanted a Carrie scare. Yeah. It's a thing that started happening after yeah. this movie. Like, yeah. he got the audience. And kudos to Brian. That, that was Brian De Palma. That's yeah, not Steve. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, like, he got the audience so completely with that scare that, yeah. like, he, he invented a horror cliche. Yeah. For good or bad. Yeah. Over and above the fact, this is the first uh, Stephen King movie to be adapted. Yeah. It's one of his first books, but it's a really solid one. Yeah. Uh, they stayed true to the story, but the they characters changed a the... little bit different. Yeah. And um, the ending is scaled back. Yeah. But it's an upsetting movie. It's a yeah. tragic oh, no. horror film. Sissy Sp- yeah. the cast is incredible. Yeah. And it's as incredible as the cast is. The star of the movie is Brian De Palma. Yeah. The directing is amazing. Yep. So uh, I think Carrie is a very important horror movie. No, and, uh, I, I, I agree with you. Like, I, I, it was hard to put Carrie down all the way for me, but I just had to add to the movies. Yeah. Top five time, brother. Okay. <laughs> uh, I really do think it's George Romero's finest movie. I really do. I love me this movie. And it never gets boring. And that's George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead. I can't believe it's number five. <laughs> I just like, like that, that, that's where I'm like, really, Lee? It gets really? Tough. It gets really. Dawn of the Dead is number tough. five, yeah. but it's just like, mmm. Yeah. Mmm. Like, you can't see this at home, but I am like, <laughs> for the people just... listening, I'm having a cinematic erection right now. <laughs> All right. So you like Dawn of the Dead? Yeah. Well, get ready to be mad. In fifth position for Larry, John Carpenter's Halloween. <laughs> that ain't easy. That's not an easy call to make, but that's the call I'm making. See, right now, I'm mind-fucking. <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing slasher movie. We've reviewed it in the past. I don't know what more I can add to yeah. it. It is the prototype, you know, slasher film. Yeah. Not that other slasher films haven't happened before or yeah. since it, but... Halloween is the measure to which we, we measure all slasher films. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. Michael Myers is a scary image, yeah. and Carpenter directed the hell out of it. So uh, it's it deserves to be in the top five. Yeah. I found the top five a crucible. Like, yeah. I, couldn't, yeah. I can't believe my top five. I'm mad at myself for my top five. Okay, but well, I, it hurts. where we are. Yeah. So all the way in fifth place question mark Halloween yeah <laughs> for those at home I'm also wearing the a, a t-shirt with the poster on it just how much I love Halloween yeah. so I think your friendship's in trouble yeah. not that you put it at five yeah. anyways yeah I knew you'd think that was low but that's just where it ended up brother <laughs> fourth position <laughs> number four I also have the just utterly terrifying gore darkly Gorgeous Alien by Ridley Scott. It's one of his classic movies. H.R. Geiger's design is primal and hypnotic and also just gets under your skin. Yeah. This is one of the first hardcore female action heroes. It's the start of it. 
with, with Ripley, and that is Alien. Yeah. Alien's a terrifying, terrifying movie. The idea about this creature that impregnates you and then bursts out of your chest, it's just awful. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it fulfilled the promise that Ridley Scott had shown with yeah. The Duelist, and he was going to take yeah. it up another notch for Blade Runner. It's not a... a, a a complex movie, but it is just, you know a haunted house roller coaster ride. Well, and in the age before, you know, CGI. Yeah. The amount of special effects, the amount of practical special effects, and how good that movie still looks today. Yeah. Absolutely deserves to be on this list. Okay. In fourth position for me is where I put George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, and okay. that also fucking hurts to put it that low. <laughs> but it basically takes the themes and ideas yeah. of. Uh, Night of the Living Dead yeah. takes him out of a farmhouse and puts it in a shopping mall. Yeah. And every part of the movie gets bigger to that same degree. The yeah. amount of zombies we see, the amount yeah. of violence we see, the social satire we see, but it's put in this really delicious, disarming, ultra-violent package. Yeah. And uh, you don't even realize how smart it is. It's one of these movies that you can age into. Yeah. When I first watched Dawn of the Dead, it was all about the spatter, right? Yeah. And the more you grow up with it, the more you realize that it actually is a movie with lots to say. Oh, yeah. No, it's a very intelligent movie. There are university classes that teach this movie. So, um, yeah. I get it. I get it. Like Once I said, again, I can't believe... position, I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. Okay. In third position, brother. Okay, see, this is where, once again, I'm going to scowl at you. <laughs> but it is, and we, we have talked about this. We shouldn't talk way too much anymore about it. But that is John Carpenter's classic, classic movie, Halloween. Right. This movie, every time I see it, and even I know I know what's going to happen, still terrifying. Right. Master of Mood, John Carpenter, Halloween. Fair enough. All right, you ready to be angry? Third position. Alrighty. Is a tie. Okay. Two sci-fi horror films. Okay. Do not ask me to choose between them. Okay. Ridley Scott's Alien. Okay. And Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. They're both sci-fi horror movies. Yeah. But aside from being sci-fi horror movies, they're about as different as they can be, right? Yeah. Alien is this, like, monster movie in space jumping out of the shadows. Okay. It has the scene where the guy who knows there's a monster on the ship yeah. walks into a large, dark room yeah. calling out for a cat, right? Like, yeah. it's a cliche yeah. that you don't even clock it all yeah. because it's executed perfectly. I know. Perfectly. The Invasion of the Body Snatchers sort of plays in the same ballpark as The Wicker Man as yeah. far as this... Uh, unraveling conspiracy becoming you know first yeah. it's just about you then it's about everybody then it's everybody against you type of vibe yeah it's just there's something really terrifying about are you human or not and yeah. how do I know I did an episode of Rankin Review where both Alien and Invasion of the Body Snatchers were on the list and yeah. I, in the end I put Invasion on top but it was it was fucking brutal. I know. And so I come to this 70s list and I'm asked to make this same decision again. Okay. And you can call it a cop-out, but it's the two sci-fi movies on the list. They're sharing third place. Okay. Number two, and I can't believe this film is number two. Um, and and I, it gave me pause because when we first decided to do this show, right away I had one, two, mm-hmm. right off the bat. That was not going to change. But as time wore on, I went, I don't know. This movie, I think it's the smarter movie than number one is. Um, I think it's the scarier movie now. It's not dull and boring. <laughs> and that's William Friedkin's The Exorcist. I it's, feel you. It, this movie is to this day still terrifying. I still remember the first time seeing this movie. I think it's, 
don't know if it's the better acted. I think the script, the story is more terrifying. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's hard putting this film number two. Yeah. Um, and I can't, once again, I can't believe we're not talking about this. This movie, it's such an adult movie. The Exorcist. Yeah. William Friedkin's The Exorcist is a terrifying, terrifying movie. I feel you completely. And uh, I don't disagree with you yeah. that Jaws deserves to be at the top of yeah. the list of 70s horror movies. Yeah. But here's why I put Jaws in number two. You fuck off. <laughs> fuck off. I was right there with you. Oh. Saying, like, I was 100% with you when we said we're doing the 70s. Okay, well, number one is Jaws, right? Number one is just Jaws. Oh. It's like my favorite movie ever made, right? Like, I fucking love Jaws. But we're talking about horror movies. And if I'm honest, even with my shark thing, of which of those two movies I think is more frightening, I think that The Exorcist is a more frightening movie. I might like Jaws more than The Exorcist, like in the list of favorite movies. Yeah. But of horror movies, I might have to give the edge to The Exorcist. Well, I did give the edge to The Exorcist. Exorcist. The Kintner Boy. The Kintner Boy sequence is so terrifying. There's a lot of scary stuff in Jaws, but it turns out into an adventure movie. It's still terrifying. It's got it's got a shark that eats people and it's fucking amazing. Like, <laughs> I do not I, like it was a crucible, but like just The Exorcist is epic. It's uh, epic. I'm not denying and, this. Like, I'm not denying this. I think it's the more adult movie. Yeah. Um, I, that I, like, USS Indianapolis speech is classic. It's yeah. canon. Yeah. And, it, and uh, it's still terrifying. And, you know, I think that uh, the dude rolling down the stairs at the end of The Exorcist is classic. Yeah. I think that, you know, uh, that scene where uh, the mother goes up into the attic to hear oh, the yeah, I don't know. Yeah. and yeah. The, the torch explodes and the, all the business with Captain Howdy and, yeah. like... Uh, just the corruption of that little girl and how the transformation yeah it like like i could see Cronenberg being jealous of of, oh, yeah. of that movie it's like watching exorcist as a young man saying that was the movie i was supposed to make yeah well i mean i i gave I, I gave pause many time and it did become number one at some points like it, it's not it's not that I don't understand. <laughs> Calling Jaws the second greatest horror movie of the 70s is not really insulting. No. Right? I just... <laughs> I guess also that Jaws was the first movie that... I, like, I had nightmares for three nights in a row after seeing it. <laughs> like, the Kittner boy broke my no, mind. And I agree, because yeah. I was the age of that kid yeah. when I saw that for the first time. Yeah. And it was one of the first times I'd seen a kid die in a movie. I know. But, like, <laughs> um, I remember I was so young, I was playing with action figures. Yeah. And I was laying in a tiny space between the couch and the wall. Yeah. My dad was sitting on the couch, and he was watching The Exorcist. Yeah. And I was just listening to it. Yeah. And that gave me nightmares. Yeah. Just knowing that that voice was supposed to be coming out of a little girl. Yeah. Fucked my shit up. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, when I finally, you know, watched the movie and yeah. got the full context of it, and then grew up to an adult and was able to, like, really appreciate the, yeah. the filmmaking in it. Yeah. Um, Again, and Jaws is a magical film as well. Yeah. Dude, like, uh, yeah. it's a similar crucible I was talking about with Invasion of the Body Snatchers yeah. and Alien, in that they're both horror movies, but they're both incredibly different, what they're bringing you. Yeah. But they both bring it to you perfectly. perfectly. I, I, yeah, I know. I, 
I had the best experience watching The Exorcist for the first time. I was 14 years old, and we were living in London, Ontario, on sabbatical. My mom was on sabbatical. And we had a room where the whole room was just a window, like both the walls, the ceiling. Well, the floor was like wood. But everything else was glass. And I started it, you know, one night. And then just as the stuff with the actual possession was really starting with uh, Regan, a huge thunderstorm hit and it was night so the rest of this movie which is just unbelievably terrifying I had this thunderstorm to give this perfect perfect aesthetic to it so I get it I just I need time to adjust from that shock I surprised myself because I think we had that conversation when we were saying we're making the list like Well, Jaws is number one, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But then you get all these other... Then, then you talk about The Exorcist and Alien and Dawn of the Dead and fucking Halloween. Yeah. Like, how do you... What is it? Did you do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, in a way, I, I figured you were a lock, maybe, for Jaws number one, too. Maybe that's why I felt safe, like, yeah. <laughs> making that switch. Yeah. It seems wrong, I know, but that's how I feel. Long story short... There are way too many good horror films on this list. It was an embarrassment <laughs> of riches. I want to someday re-review The Exorcist because yeah. uh, I'm not happy with my review of The Exorcist. Terry Schroll talked shit about that movie, and I was so surprised that he was talking shit about yeah. it. I felt I didn't adequately defend it. Yeah. So today's the day I'm saying The Exorcist is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, horror movie of the 1970s. Fair enough. It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there, even Carrie White, the girl no one likes. We're all sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. See the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. But tonight, no one will laugh at Carrie. If you don't have a date to the prom next Friday, would you like to go with me? She's with the best-looking boy in the senior class. He's trying to trick me again. She'll be voted queen of the prom. You know, I can make sure that you don't hurt Carrie White anymore. For Carrie, it will be a dream come true. For everyone else, it will be a nightmare. (coughs) Carrie. (coughs) A new film by Brian De Palma. Based on the chilling bestseller. Starring Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, and introducing John Travolta in his first motion picture role. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. So the work of Carrie is significant on many reasons. I mean, it's the first published work of Stephen King, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been remade several times there was a very lackluster sequel to it there's been a musical made about it mm-hmm. uh, people seem to have connected to this story of this high school outsider Carrie White mm-hmm. uh, who has got a pretty abusive toxic relationship with her 
religious zealot of a mother. Yeah. Uh, they live alone in this house with their crazy religious fervor. Mm-hmm. And um, as a result, they're isolated from the rest of the community. She finds it really hard to socialize at school. Yeah. Um, she's, I think, clearly traumatized and broken by her upbringing mm-hmm. and has her own psychological issues to bear. But mm-hmm. what really sort of starts the ball rolling is she gets her period for the first time. You. And not only is that a traumatic event for her just in and of itself, <clears throat> as it must be, uh, it happens publicly in a girl's locker room, and uh, she is humiliated yep. and terrified, Pardon me. and uh, just absolutely victimized yeah. by the girls in there. Just, it's it's a horrifying scene in the book. Yeah, and De Palma does everything he can to do it justice in the movie. Oh, he's masterful in, in with that opening shot. That the beginning of this movie. I mean, it's a classic movie, but. The, one of the things that makes it work so well, and then that's both the work, but like the cinematography by Mario Tosi and the music by Piano Donaggio. I'm sure I'm saying that incorrectly. It starts off almost as this sort of, you know, soft porn, you know, kind of look aesthetic to it, and you know, it's it is fulfilling that sort of pubescent teenage fantasy of oh, you get to see the girls, but then it goes to a place very ugly, ugly, and it's just. Bang! Yeah. I also think, and I've talked about it before, it, that slow motion pan through a girl's locker room. Yeah. Yeah, there's that, like, the little teenage boy looking it's through very a people thing, yeah. right? Yeah. But uh, it establishes early in the movie, if we're going to show you this over mm-hmm. the fucking opening credits, practically, yeah. what, where else are we going to go? Yeah. It takes you off your guard, right? Yeah. It's oh, yeah. Like, no, okay. but it's, it's just, I'm giving chops to the powers of the seduction of this, uh, yeah. of this movie and how it's presented. But I'm going to push the plot a little bit okay. here. Uh, like... So yeah, she has her period. They 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 they're really brutal to her. But this is a catalyst not only just for her bullying going up another level, yeah. but her becoming a woman, as it were, yeah. opens up this inherent psychic ability, this yeah. sin, yeah. as her mother would call it. Yeah. And I think that like her mother had winks of it in herself, possibly but, uh, that she feared for that in her daughter in a yeah. way. Though she feared her daughter becoming a woman, but she also feared her daughter inheriting this shining or this psychic gift or whatever you want to call it. Are we coming on saying that this is the shine? (laughs) Well, I think that Stephen King's books are all connected in all of the world. And I think that Carrie White has a similar gift that Danny Torrance has in The Shining. It's not referred to as The Shining here, but psychic people happen a lot in Stephen King's books. The interesting thing is that, that, like I say, this outsider character narrative. Yeah, we want to see her sort of blossom, flower, and do well with her peers and sort of get some comeuppance with the bullies. Mm -hmm. And the film does that service, but it also maintains this tragic trajectory. Yeah. The main difference between Carrie White in the film and Carrie White in the book, in the book she's kind of a bigger girl, and in the film they kind of go the other way, where she's like skinny as a rail, and yeah. they're kind of a plain Jane. In both cases, her clothes are homemade, yeah. and you know she's kind of frumpy, and uh, because it's the way she's raised, mm-hmm. she comes off as fairly unequivocal, especially when it comes off to people doing things that are improper. Yeah. She comes off as snotty. Yeah. Um, in in the movie, she comes off as less snotty and more just like ignorant, like yeah. just the fact that she doesn't understand what her period is when it happens to her. Yeah, that infuriates people. Like they just don't understand how that could happen. But yeah, it happened. 
Yeah. So what we have is a tale of revenge and mm. a tale of an outsider. And those things have always been classically successful works in literature. Mm -hmm. But what is it do you think that makes Carrie special? Like, I ranked it higher in the list of 70s movies than you did. But mm -hmm. um, I think it is one of the most important uh, horror movies of the 70s. It is, it is one of the most important horror movies of the 70s. You have to understand it was hard putting Carrie down there but there was just other things I wanted to talk about that I think ranked higher but I think one of the reasons why it is considered a classic horror movie is that one of the things that, that I don't know if it's maybe original but the monster itself is not the villain it is it is she is very much the tragic person uh, I don't know about you but when she finally hits that part where it's a homicidal where she turns homicidal yeah. and I would even argue is that point yeah, can't even control her power to some Travis Bickle rage yeah um, right? <laughs> but you're all, you, I don't know I found myself cheering for her getting revenge on the community that had really betrayed her mm -hmm. because whether you believe it or not you know what Carrie sees obviously there's a couple of people laughing uh, for the, the she trick sees happened. everybody laughing. Yeah, not everybody's laughing. In fact, about half the room is nakedly horrified. Yeah, but in her head, they're it's all, confirmation yeah. of her mother saying they're all going to laugh at you. Yeah, and uh, and the the enough people are laughing that that's yeah. all she sees. That's all yeah. she hears. And to take the words out of De Palma's mouth, everyone is guilty. Everyone must die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like you. When she finally succumbs in the story, I feel nothing but tragic loss. Like, I don't, I don't hate this person at all. She is put through so much tragedy and trauma, that's mm -hmm. the word, that when she finally does break and her monstrous side is exposed... Not once do I judge her, and I think that's something that, and it it it, it rings so true. And like you could tell this story today, mm -hmm. it is so authentic. In fact, the story still exists to this day in real life. You know, the, people get bullied to death or bullied to crazy, and then kill themselves. Yeah, um, you know this. I it's universal. I think is what I'm trying to get at. This and story, and that's the sign of a classic movie. There's something in us that wants to see the underdog come up and, 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 and spank these people. Yeah. But I think to the movie and the book's credit, yeah. when she does spank these people, it gets ugly. Yeah. Now, in typical Stephen King fashion, and here's some spoilers for the book as, yeah. as well as we'll get to the spoilers of the movie. Yeah. In the book, she destroys a good portion of the town. Yeah, the like, remake explores that more. It becomes more of like a free-for-all, like it burned yeah. down everything. Everything has gone wrong, and she gets to that point of just naked rage. Yeah. And then, you know, so I, I, I don't like that leaning towards Stephen King where he likes to end things with a big bang. Yeah. But what De Palma did, he kept it contained to the high school. Yeah. But he showed both the guilty and the innocent being punished. Yeah. Most memorably, uh, what's the name of the teacher? Uh, shit. Um, da. I'm having Mrs. Snell. Yeah. She's uh, the one. She's the one who disciplines all the girls. Yeah. Who were so fucking evil to her. Yeah. In, in the yeah. opening scene. Yeah. And she's. The one who's really genuinely nice to yeah. Carrie. Yeah. And she's the one who actually connects and tries to help Carrie. Yeah. And she is given the worst death of the movie. I wouldn't say the worst death, but it's a pretty brutal one. Um, 
she's she snapped in half. Uh, yeah. Again, the documentary on the disc, she said De Palma gave her the direction. I want you to squirm like a bug on a pin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I always equate it with the the, the worst death. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that that was smart. It scaled down. The high school people were guilty. Everybody yeah. there, whether they were guilty or not, she found them all guilty. Yeah. And. She looks at Mrs. Snell. She sees who it is. Yeah. She sees her say, don't do it, don't do it. She does it, and she watches her writhe as she dies. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's... She didn't deserve that. Yeah. And on some far distant plane, yeah. Carrie even knows it. Yeah. But she does it, and she enjoys doing it. Yeah. Because she's completely captured by her vengeance. Yeah. Uh, she's made into a monster both by her mother and these bullies. Yeah. We haven't really talked about John Travolta and Nancy Allen. Yeah, because they are despicable, <laughs> dysfunctional human beings who who lead the catalyst into, into breaking Carrie. Like, really, Nancy Allen's character has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Travolta's character is sort of like a dumb... Here's where we fall back on something I've said recently. Travolta's not good at playing villains. In the screenplay and in the book, like he's one of these Greaser Stephen King villains, and he's an asshole, and he slaps Chris around. Yeah. Travolta couldn't do it. He wasn't even like willing to yeah. really physically slap her. So I think De Palma, instead of fighting Travolta on this, just mm-hmm. let Chris be the main villain. She was in the driver's seat at all time. Yeah. He probably wouldn't be this much of a villain, but yeah. Chris steers him that way. Oh, yeah. There's a difference between bullying a girl and yeah. literally killing a pig yeah. to drain it of blood, to pour a bucket of blood on this girl's head. Yeah. To, like, do this unbelievably meticulous, like, rig the, the election yeah. of prom queen so that Carrie wins, yeah. so that at the peak of her happiness, she can just smack her down again yeah. publicly. Yeah. It is so fucking evil. Yeah. But it's one of the weird cases where I'm not distracted by the Stephen King villain, because I believe a teenage girl is capable of fucking anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Larry, do tell. Okay. Well, no, hell hath no fury. Yeah, like, right? uh, like yeah. Chris yeah. was denied her prom, and yeah. she was made a villain, yeah. and she was publicly shamed and slapped by a teacher okay. in front of all of her peers. Yeah. She so had Carrie been... White had to pay. Yeah. And it it, it, abs- it it consumed her life, this, this revenge, right? Yeah. But we want to see a really brutal death for Chris, but yeah. that's not who gets the brutal death. It's Mrs. Snell. Because vigilante justice, however satisfying, is wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand. I understand what you're getting at here. Um, one thing I do I want to talk about about the final scene because that final attack at the school it, it's it's iconic, but how it's presented. Some people, I've, some critics reading up on the reviews didn't like the split screen. I think it is so good. It works so well, and it covers a lot more of the action in doing so, where it isn't distracting to me I think that how that's framed that whole idea of it I say that's yes, De Palma no. right there yes and no I mean De Palma has always been pretty experimental with that yeah when the split screen has one side on Carrie yeah and the other side on what her mind is making happen yeah I'm on board yeah but with the split screen is just two pieces of different chaos yeah and you have to pick your vision you yeah. can't watch yeah. both at once yeah then more so than even the fact that it is undeniably a split screen. It seems to be screaming. Split screen, which takes you out of the movie just for a second. Me? I disagree, but okay. But, like I say, there are moments where I think it's effective, and there's moments where it, okay. it takes me out of it. Okay. Um, but it certainly doesn't sink the ship, because like I say, I think it's a classic horror movie. Yep. Um, we should talk about uh, Piper Laurie. 
You. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Woo! Both she and Sissy Spacek were nominated for uh, Oscars. Rightfully so. Um, and I like how seriously the Oscars took this movie. Yeah. But it's interesting. Piper Laurie's performance comes close to high camp to me. Like, it's a good performance. I wouldn't take away any awards from her. But, yeah. like, she plays it huge. Yep. And um, they another major change from the book. Again, spoiler for anyone who wants to read the book. Yeah, yeah, she dies differently. She dies very differently in the book. Like, yeah. Harry looks her in the eye, and as they're con- having a conversation, she stops her heart. Yeah. And, and like, they're, they're, they're basically, like, soul-staring yeah. at each other as she puts out her mum's light. It's yeah. the most personal kill yeah. as you read it. Yeah. But that would be a really hard thing to translate on screen. So... Uh, Possible, but yeah. Uh, the De Palma sort of puts this whole bunch de facto of... crucifixion, right? Yeah, yeah. She gets these kitchen implements, pin her up to the wall in a Jesus pose, yeah. and she's getting stabbed again and again and again. Yeah. And I think that was a good choice. And but what I love about it is the Piper Laurie's take on her death scene yeah. is that she loves it. Watch it again. And as each one of those things are stabbing her, yeah. she's smiling and almost like, it's almost orga- like orgasmic. orgasmic. The yeah. way she's like, ah. Oh, like she's so grateful for her pain ending yeah. <laughs> like that she's welcoming each one of these hits fair enough I, I remember thinking this too it's fucked yeah I, you know that she thought she was making a black comedy when she was making this movie I think that's what, one of the brilliant things about it is that she she literally thought that's she why was, she was playing it so big I bet right? yeah yeah, she thought she was making a black comedy. And well it, she's a Stephen King villain and I say this as a Stephen King fan like yeah. he paints in black and white and Carrie White's mom, Margaret White, is yeah. fucking bad. Yeah. She's a terrible mother yeah. and a terrible person. Yeah. And uh, so, like, it, I can see that. You read the lines and it was like, she's being raised by Emperor Palpatine. It's just yeah. like, she's nothing about her is nice or warm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And yet Carrie still loves her mama. I know, mama. Uh, the religious repression angle, I think, is really interesting, too. The fact that she's repeatedly locked in a closet and forced to look at the spooky Jesus nightlight and, and pray yeah. to it yeah. for hours, perhaps days at a time. And that's what partly what, what carries, at least the fear from it, is the fear of this fascist organized religion. Yeah, or at least taken to a pathology that's pretty unhealthy. The details. You know, yeah. The scratches that are low yeah. on the door. Yeah. She's a t- teenager now, but at some point she was a little girl scratching and screaming to yeah. get out of that fucking room. Yeah, which brings back Ugh. to my whole argument that Carrie is very much a tragic person and not not a monster. She, she did bad well, things. Well, not, not a villain. She did some really evil things, but she was made into this monster. Yeah, so that's why I, I can't. Her mom and Susan, and yeah. what happened to her at the in that in that shower room. Yeah, I think this this I don't know maybe argue that where I'm wrong, but this is probably his most De Palma's most emotionally intelligent story, because De Palma's I don't think is a as a deep 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 thinker when it comes to a, a lot of his stories. Somewhat, I mean. He likes technical filmmaking. For yeah. me, like, he read the script and he saw that prom sequence. Yeah. And he saw that he could fucking shoot the hell out of that. Yeah. And he does. Yeah. Um, but it, it was more that I can make a hell of a sequence out of that than I really, you know, believe in the story or connect. It's just that Carrie White's character is so authentic and, once again, relatable. Like, And, and just the journey that she goes on, I th- you believe every beat of it. Yeah. 
unquestionably. The outsider getting their revenge is always, you know, you know, yeah. it's like a, a horror version of Rudy. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Like yeah. Carrie has been, her entire life has been fucked around and yeah. like, she's just had such a bad beat forever. Yeah. And things finally start to go good for her. Yeah. And then it's all taken away. Yeah. And, and she and cannot it, deal it, with But it. in the worst way too. Like that would break anyone. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's bullied to death. Yeah. So like I absolutely feel sympathy for Carrie White, but I like that they kept the horror. Yeah. No no what no, like like I'm not denying that. Like, what happens is horrific. Yeah. Uh, I guess I just can't agree that well, I mean she does she does turn and murder people. Yeah, you, you can't deny that. Yeah. But I just She's in the deep down in, yeah, deep down point. inside of the, you totally am like you go girl. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and for me it's that scene where she goes home and she gets in the bathtub and she wants only to be comforted by her mom. Yeah. Her mom has been proven right. Uh, she's lost. She's surrendered at this point. I will be the most dutiful daughter you ever want me to be because I never can, you know can deal with this outside world again. And instead of being embraced by her mom, she's fucking stabbed by her mom. I know. <laughs> it's just there's nothing for Carrie but yeah. violence. Like, there's nothing. Yeah. Travis Bickle, at least, I think, you know, given the right person, the right opportunity, could choose to, to, to at least attempt to steer his life around. Yeah. Carrie's trajectory is so forced on her. Yeah. That it's it's tragic and horrifying. Yeah, we should talk about William Cat very quickly as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think the choices they made, it, I mean, it was, I think, made in good intentions, was the, you know right choice for them to go on that date I mean clearly he's he's not in on the conspiracy he doesn't know that this bucket of blood is and uh, Sue Snell the Amy Irvin character genuinely feels horrible for her participation in the bathroom ridicule and so she thinks she deserves to miss prom and she thinks Carrie deserves to have this romantic night. Yeah. So she convinces her boyfriend to take Carrie out. That's yeah. that's not. And he's being legitimately nice to her. Now, are they going to fall in love and have a relationship? No. No. This is a gesture. Yeah. But it's a very friendly gesture. Yeah. And uh, you know, it would have been a nice night for Carrie that she would remember forever, and it would maybe help socialize her a little bit. So the next yeah. time she went out, the world would be a little less scary. Yeah. Alas. None of that was to be. Yeah, and it kills But him. he's furious when it yeah, happens. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he gets electrocuted on the stage in the book. I think the concussion, I think it's implied that he's killed by the dropping of the pail in the movie. Yeah. But in the book, he's laying on the stage when one of the chords light up. Okay. And he's, he's and, but that sort of sends, that's what sends Carrie finally mm-hmm. over the edge. Yeah. So, anyways, William Cat's really good. Amy Irving is really good. Um, of course, you've already talked about it with that, that classic iconic. This is the movie that I don't know if it started it, but definitely made it famous. That whole last gotcha ending that has been done to death and now parodied and mentioned and made fun of by, well, the Scream films for sure. But And just talk about all the peaks and valleys, successes and, and lack thereof for Stephen King adaptations. Yeah. He came out of the gate with Carrie it was a good book and it's a great movie okay well I'm gonna come back at you why do you think Carrie is you know a classic horror film well like I've said the relatable templates of the outsider getting revenge and yeah. it's proved in, in many genres in comedies and yeah. romances and in dramas anything yeah. people connect to that 
Yeah. Uh, so there's that. Yeah. Um, and I think just the historic union of these two powerful things, they merged, right? Yeah. Brian De Palma met Stephen King halfway in a way Kubrick didn't with The Shining. Yeah. Kubrick turned The Shining into a Stanley Kubrick joint more than it was a Stephen King story. Yeah. De Palma managed to tell the story and show us what an amazing filmmaker he was. Yeah. How, how good is Piper... Or, um Sissy Spacek in this movie because we really haven't talked a lot about her. We talked about her character. She's the heart and soul of the movie. Yeah, like she's the emotional barometer of the movie. Yeah, without her, nothing works. Yeah, she's so good. She gives off such a bare, emotionally raw performance. You don't doubt once that this girl is just very shy and sheltered and easily manipulated. Yeah, uh, and it, it's I think it's hard to project to project that yeah. uh, and you believe every element of that so yeah yeah Sissy Spacek it, she didn't win for this but she went for was it Badlands? Places in the Heart Places in the Heart I think one question I wanted to ask you is De Palma one of the criticisms about De Palma throughout his years is that he's been accused of orchestrating you know a well laid out misogyny um that was labeled pretty hardcore during Dress to Kill, obviously labeled here and Body Double. Do you think that he is a misogynist filmmaker? Um, my knee-jerk reaction is no. I think that uh, he, he has admitted you know, he loves photo photographing women. Well, I mean, I don't think we should be ashamed of enjoying no. the female no. form. No, uh, But they're talking about mainly with the violence towards women. Mm -hmm. okay? He's and very good at, at women suffering. In this case, it's based off of a Stephen King book, and all the mm -hmm. female suffering came with the book. Yeah. To not include it would be not to do justice to the story. Yeah. Now, I mean, he seems to come back to dangerous women doing dangerous things again and again, mm -hmm. and he likes the femme fatales. He made a movie called Femme Fatales, mm -hmm. the, but is that sexist? I don't know. I don't know if I'm willing to make that argument. Okay. I stand by my opinion that I think he doesn't look at story when he reads scripts. He looks yeah. at sequences. Yeah. He, like, reads that, you know... I guess it was originally a train station shootout in mm -hmm. The Untouchables. It turned into the stairway shootout. But mm -hmm. he reads the shootout in the subway station at, at, at Carlito's Way, and he's like, yeah, I can shoot the shit out of that. Mm -hmm. He reads the sequence about the prom and Carrie, and he sees how he can really tell that story in a really impressive visual way. Mm -hmm. I think that he's much more a technical workman filmmaker than he is emotional about it, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a huge elaborate sequence that leads up to a woman's throat being slashed in, in, in Dress to Kill. But it's not about the woman's throat being slashed. It's about the elaborate sequence that gets us there, mm -hmm. for me. The people that are obsessed with the violence are people that are predisposed to be obsessed with the violence. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do believe that there are people, Lars von Trier is definitely fucking one of them, that gets off on mm -hmm. women's suffering. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's the case with De Palma. I think De Palma is a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I think it's less about you know you know what the story is saying or what the feelings of the characters are mm -hmm. than how he's going to present this tale to you technically. Mm -hmm. I will say this though, I mean, we can leave this argument if you want. He's very good at, at also photographing women suffering. He's very good at it. It's it's, it's one of his calling cards. I'm not saying he says. Did sexy. he write all the screenplays for these movies? I don't even know. I'm honestly asking. No, no. Yeah, I know he didn't write Carrie. I think. Yeah. Or did he co-write it? Uh, according to the uh, Lauren D. Cohen is credited with the screenplay here. Yeah, I don't. I Lawrence don't think, D. Cohen. Yeah, I didn't think he did. 
Um, um, like the source material is the source material he does a lot of genre thriller horror mm-hmm. movies and women tend to die badly in those yeah. movies I mean uh, you can you can try and crucify the entire genre if you want um, no no, I'm not going to do that either I was just was one of those sort of plopping it in there one of those questions since we're talking about Carrie yeah. and there's a lot of female suffering in this story it was just one of the things that sort of he, he, he does it quite well Carrie's the classic example of this. You know, people can go on and on about, oh, there's a bunch of naked teenage girls and there's a bunch of violence towards teenage girls. Yeah. Who are the most powerful characters in this movie? Teenage girls, <laughs> right? Yeah. This movie passes the Bechdel test, right? Yeah. Like, uh, it's about women being terrible to each other, but it's about strong women. And yes, there's some violence to it, but uh, it's a horror movie. Fucking suck it up. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Beckman and uh, Larry Parsons have uh, ranked our top 25 horror movies of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about five interesting ones and one not so interesting one. Yeah. Um, but what's your takeaway from all of this? Was this a worthy use of your time? Uh, this, we originally, when you originally wanted to do it, you were like, let's do it, do it right away. And I made you wait like six or eight months so that I could watch a shit ton of 70s movies. Yeah. Was it worth it? <laughs> of course it was. You had to ask that. <laughs> That's a rhetorical question. Um, yeah, it was totally worth it. It was, it was great seeing, uh, you know, a lot of great cinema. I mean, all of them not so, you know, not all of them didn't hit them out of the park. But yeah. there was something about this decade that was just so strong. And I loved the similarities I saw, you know, was obviously this focus on a dreamlike aesthetic, psychics. Uh, and telekinesis were, you know, definitely very interesting and examined. The psychological stuff. Subject, on. you know. Yeah, there's a lot of psychological depth going on mm-hmm. in the 70s in a way like that we got past sort of the surface entertainment of a lot of the 60s, yeah. you know, musical and sort of spectacle kind of films. Yeah. And uh, the in the 70s they rolled up their sleeves and some filmmaking started happening and some yeah. real character work started happening and and the acting which had been getting increasingly more realistic has sort of became gritty and authentic yeah. and uh, also all of all 70s films benefited from this this windfall but mm-hmm. uh, it was a strong decade for horror movies like again the top five mm-hmm. top five was brutal to yeah. try and like yeah. make sense out of yeah <laughs> like how do I how do I put these movies in any kind of order yeah um, in, in a way like the 80s one was a little bit easier to sort for me there yeah. were more movies that I was familiar with but there were more that were easier to dismiss for that level yeah um, 
I, I, I've, I've, I've got a more of an appreciation for giallo films, even though they'll never be my favorite thing. Giallo. Uh, they'll never be my favorite thing, but yeah. I'm, I'm starting to like adjust to the temperature of the waters. Yeah. Um, you know, a I lot think of filmmakers that we still watch and, and are still revered today, we talked about in this list. Your Martin Scorsese's, your Brian De Palma's, to your lesser extent, your David Lynch, yeah. you know, definitely Steven Spielberg, still very valid. Mm-hmm. And these were them in their formative years, and uh, they were, they came out swinging. Yeah, yep. Um, I also like uh, once again Scorsese. I already mentioned this, but Scorsese talked about how these how these films at this time were really just an extension of dreams, and 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 that quality. Uh, it, it, with even the aesthetic how a lot of these movies look they do feel almost like there's a very much separation between you the viewer and the story uh, you know there's a wall that's nice there uh, and you experience that a lot I mean it's still very hypnotic and you still kind of suck into it but there is the fact that this this is a kind of extension of us but there's still that wall yeah. that, that's one way I could sort of only really sort of explain it um, well, so there's, there's, it's nice to see that as well. And to repeat myself, there are the indie sensibilities of filmmaking being yeah. put into big budget movies. Yeah. I like the fact that, um, a lot of films were literally unleashed on their content and also, um, some of the things that, you know, made the films naughty. The age of here's a bag of money, go make your movie is gone. If anyone's going to give you millions of dollars to make a movie, they're going to want a creative hand. Yeah. An iron in the fire. And too many irons in the fire will will put it out, will kill your movie, right? Yeah. Like this time of like, you know, why are we doing this super slow close-up shot on the hubcap of the taxi car? Why are we doing that, Martin? We're doing that because it feels right. Yeah. Well, don't you traditionally mount the camera like centered in the middle of the windshield instead of like way off in the prow of yeah. the uh, of the hood of the cab? Why that's not standard. Why are we doing that? Because it's right. Yeah. Because that's what it feels right to tell this story, right? Yeah. Like the the rule books got discarded for a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very. It's also very guitarity in and and that sort of way. I love the fact that the camera is off center in a good portion of Taxi Driver. It really doesn't focus a lot on the center. It does sort of pan almost in a diagonal or parallel way sometimes to the, to the actor, yeah. which gives off this sort of, you know, unhinged, everything's not centered feel to that. And that's also done quite a bit in a lot of these films, especially I would, definitely Argento would be one. Well, and you can see the, the... I'm more impressed by uses of camera in the 70s, too, because yeah. they don't have all the toys. I miss a good it, long shot. And, and there's a great one in Carrie. Long shots, slow pans, slow reveals. Yeah. Uh, 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 movies that aren't afraid to, you know, ask their audience to engage and meet them halfway. Yeah. So many movies nowadays, even movies I like, like the, like the Marvel Universe, I think, is completely fine and fun to watch. Yeah. But you are spoon-fed. They make sure that nobody's lost at any point, right? Like, yeah. this uncomplicated movie watching. Yeah. Just keep you filling your face with popcorn. Yeah. Sometimes I like that, but sometimes I want a meal. I want something that, that will stimulate me, that will fire things off in other corners of my brain, other than 
fire good <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah yeah i can i like pretty lights i like fireworks but i also like something that will maybe make me think yeah and uh that's that's that extra layer that gives so many 70s movies their 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 edge you know like yeah yeah it's another dog day afternoon may be another bank robbery movie but it's unlike any bank robbery movie you've ever seen yeah right yeah and yeah. to this day the Carrie's been remade a couple of times now, but it's yeah. the original Carrie just is dead on. It just yeah. it feels right. Yeah. yeah. Even though they changed the book. Like the most recent version of Carrie was much more authentic to the book, but yeah. just didn't quite land. Yeah, I know. I, I, I you know, the, the changes that De Palma made I think totally enhanced that story for, for, uh, for the film. Yeah, no, I, I agree in that as well. There was a lot of risk taking, uh, and that was more successful than it did fail. Even like Phantasm, I think is an example of that because that's a crazy story. It's a mishmash of a couple of genres, and but just, but that story could only ever be made in the seventies. I miss movies willing to take risks. This is totally jumping the shark because it has nothing to do with the seventies. But yeah, I think the other day we were talking about this absurd comedy, Dodgeball the movie. Yeah. I think that the original conceit of that movie would have been executed well in the 70s. Yeah. In the in this dodgeball, which is a ridiculous, uh, amusing comedy about the sport of dodgeball, right? Yeah. Was originally as scripted going to set us all up for the big game to save the Joe Schmo gym. Yeah. But they lose. Yeah. They lose hard and they smash cut to credits and the joke was going to be on the audience, right? Yeah. Well, they went ahead and made Dodgeball, but they didn't have the guts to pull the trigger on that ending. Yeah. If it was made in 77, they would have pulled the trigger on that ending, whether it was good for the film or not. Yeah. And that's why the 70s is going to be a more interesting decade. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> it all comes back to Dodgeball. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Thank you for talking seven, so much 70s yeah. <laughs> with me. Yeah. Uh, current champion. I still am rank and review champion. I'm surprised. Mr. Lee Beckman. I'm surprised by that. I figured uh, Lee Beckman will return again. Uh, we're going to be talking about intellectually stimulating cinema. <laughs> important cinema. Important you cinema. named it. Yes, cinema of importance. So let's all look forward to that. You. discussion of 70s horror comes to an end. But just because our discussion comes to an end doesn't mean that your discussion has to. You can send feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please tell me what you think. Tell me what movies I missed. Tell me what you would rank your 70s horror movies. And let me know the gaps that I've missed. Should I talk about the Hammer Horror movies sometime? Um, any glaring omissions? This is the time to tell me. Thank you so much for listening to this two-part epic adventure into the 1970s horror. And as always, your host and running Canadian Larry Parsons says thank you. I love you guys for listening, and please spread the word to those other movie nerds in your life. We'll be back in two weeks with another action-packed episode of Frank and Review.